Welcome and good morning. Thanks for coming to church. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Delighted to have you with us today. Um, quick thing about me and my crew and my house, uh, we, we value smoothies. I don't know if you have a food or a thing. Uh, we like smoothies, especially uh, among the, the youngers in our house. Um, Tropical Smoothie Cafe is a very sacred, nearing fourth member of the Trinity kind of thing. And... Um, you know, you get that colorful, blended, sweet, often healthy. You want your peach. We got you. Guava, passion fruit, mango, pineapple. We love that. So refreshing, especially on a hot day. Do, do you have that picture in mind? Licking your lips a little bit, perhaps. Um, now, imagine I were to make you a very uh, strange offer, weird proposition for you. Every day, I will give you a smoothie of your choosing. I will have it sent to you with the app, whatever, wherever you're going to be. You get to pick the ingredients. If you're a berry person, you've got berries. If you'd like coconut, you got coconut. Uh, we'll even throw in a shot of, of, of protein. Whatever you want to do, you get it blended up fresh just the way you like it, but there's a catch. Every day, what I'm going to do, just because I'm maniacal, I'm going to add just a few drops of gasoline in the smoothie. It'll get blended up. Um, and, and, and don't worry here, it's not going to be like even like half of an ounce, just a few drops with all the other flavors and aromas. You probably won't even notice it. And it's going to be premium gasoline, the kind of stuff reserved for a sports car, right? So it, it'll be the good stuff. We'll put that in there every morning, hardly detectable. Do you still want that daily smoothie? Yeah. All right. Somebody's like, who needs a liver? We're fine. Okay. Now, um, that's where my weird brain goes in trying to give you an illustration to carry us the rest of the way. So try to keep that weird smoothie proposition in, in your mind as we go forward. Even if it's not helpful, at least you have lost respect for the way that my brain works. Anyways... This morning, we are continuing in our series in the book of Colossians, written by the imprisoned Paul, a series we're calling If Then, and this finds Paul writing a Greek church in the first century. He had never visited this church, and he's reaching out from a place of concern over a blend of false teaching that was influential in their neck of the woods. It was a contaminating threat, if you will. And today what we're going to do is we're going to camp out in four verses, mostly Colossians 2 verses 4 through 8. Um, but I want to start at the end, kind of work our way backwards because I think that will be most helpful. Here's the main verse of the day, Colossians 2, verses 8. Verse 8, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So he's saying constantly keep a lookout that you don't unwittingly become like a spiritual POW. Okay, so that you don't get got, you don't get had by empty ideologies. What he has been doing thus far is he's been explaining to the Colossians that Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is it. Jesus is all that you need. And understanding the sufficiency, the supremacy of Christ is the basis for every kind of maturity, whether that's maturity in what you believe or maturity in how you live. So let's go back a few verses. 
springboard off of Paul's concern and his desire. He says, for I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you. So he is praying for, he is laboring in prayer. The word there in Greek is agon. He is agonizing. He is, he is writing theology and he's imprisoned for the proclamation of the gospel. I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. What does he want? What is Paul's why? I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. Think about that. That is an ambitious thing to want. All the riches of understanding. To have knowledge of God's mystery. What is it for Paul? Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's describing the shape of his care and concern for the Christians there in Colossae and Laodicea. And then later in the letter, he'll talk about Heropolis. He mentions three important cities. And scholars believe there is likely two things, a mixture that's kind of poisoning uh, what they're drinking, if you will. The first was this legalistic, skewed version of uh, Judaism. We, we hear a talk of the Judaizers. Uh, at Riverview, we've talked a little bit about legalism. That's been a consistent thing because we believe the gospel is freeing and liberating, right? But the other thing is Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this old heresy that involves seeking out a hidden, supposedly higher truth, higher knowledge. And, and so what... Paul is doing here as he's saying, you know, there, there's contradicting beliefs that are just getting dropped in. And we don't really notice it. And so he's, he's afraid here. And the result for them was they had extra rules and behaviors that went beyond the scripture, you know, just in case. You got to add all this other stuff. And then Jesus wasn't enough. So we got to add a few extra rituals or initiations or spiritual encounters because Jesus may not be enough. I want to camp here for a minute to explain who the Gnostics were, okay? Uh, what we're talking here is an ancient Near Eastern philosophy. It's a religious philosophy that believed only the spirit realm was important. So the things that are done in the body, whether I'm sinning in the body or there is a body that was resurrected of someone who claimed to be God, that doesn't really matter. Only thing that matters is the spiritual stuff. And the word Gnostic is one of multiple language, excuse me, words in the Greek language that means to know. So the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, -S, to know. And so the Gnostics saw an elevated or supposed higher knowledge, higher truth that only the elite that have these encounters could access. And by the way, this was the kind of knowledge not found in the scripture. So they would have to go beyond what is written. What this did was as it undercut central claims about Christ, namely that he was human, <laughs> namely that he was raised from the dead. See, Gnostics supposed that God would have only been spiritual and separate from the material world, that anything physical was bad, lesser, and lower, and anything spiritual was automatically good and defined. But here's the thing about the Bible. It puts a little wrinkle in that because the Bible teaches the physical world is good. It's good. It's a very earth stuff, matter, affirming matter matters to the Christian, right? Now, we're under a curse. Yes, there's a fall. Yes, but when God made stuff, what did he say? He said it was good. Not only that, but the Bible also says some spiritual things are bad. 
Satan, demons. And then there's this other category that Paul likes to talk about from time to time called the powers and the principalities. If you've read the Bible, you've been in church, you've probably heard about the powers and principalities. And by the powers, we don't necessarily mean people in government in a position of power, though they could be puppeteered by such things. But we're talking evil spirits who mislead. And so scripture occasionally talks about powers and principalities as these vague, unseen forces that wield power to oppose God and harm people. So what is Paul ultimately getting at here, and how is it relevant? Because I don't know about you, I don't walk down the street in our, in our time and place and hear many people who are like, you know, I'm Gnostic, <laughs> or, oh gosh, I'm a, I'm a Judaizer. That may not be very relevant to us, but there is something deeper, more enduring. And that thing is syncretism. Paul is warning against syncretism. What is syncretism? The dictionary defines syncretism as the reconciliation or fusion of differing belief systems. So for them, there was a blending of this distorted legalistic Judaism and this Gnostic religious philosophy making this unholy cocktail that they thought could still be passed off as Christian. You're combining true faith with other ideas and these ideas actually undercut, work, work against it. And so Paul doesn't want to see people shaped and contoured by this and then thinking, ooh, I'm Christian and I'm doing the Christian life. Here's the sneaky thing about syncretism. It's not like a formal uh, renunciation or conversion to different religions. It's not like, I'm an atheist now, or guess what? I'm a Hindu now. That's not what this is like. Syncretism is you still name Jesus. So it gets really, really sneaky. It's not an outright rejection of the faith. Rather, it's when we bring something in, we bring something else in so that it syncs up with another worldview or another dominant cultural narrative. It might be like going to Tropical Smoothie and your maniacal clergyman is like, oh, let me just put some gasoline in there, you know, because who needs a liver? Okay. Uh, recently, um, I had this opportunity to go to Israel uh, for almost two weeks, did this study tour, deep dive into history, archaeology, language of scripture, a lot of things, and the text is now like in 3D, and uh, went with 33 people from Riv. I will probably unpack this more in the future uh, when you are a captive audience as you are, um, but for, day, for today, I just want to share one profound insight, something really struck me. Um, Because I saw at many different archaeological digs where where temples and and synagogues were unearthed, I saw with my own eyes these, these places that were dug up were inside temples, synagogues, the people of God found in this place, naming God, that other artifacts or totems or pagan idols were brought in, sometimes even inside the Holy of Holies, like the place where only the high priest was to go because the presence of God would reside there. And when they dug up some of these old ancient sites that the Bible talks about of how there was sacrifices in the high places and uh, a spiritual adultery in the high places, that they have found totems to Baal, totems to Asherah, Uh, who who I believe are actually demons. They were brought into the temple. And so what this means, and if you read the Bible, and you read, there's some dark parts in the Old Testament. The people of God, who would have still said, yes, I, I follow the Lord, I follow Yahweh, they would have identified with his covenant. They didn't believe he was enough. 
And so this ancient Near Eastern God promised fertility or protection, and they said, I will take the Lord and. And he said, you will have no other gods before me. And they're like, yeah, but there's this promise. And so what follows, you see this in scripture, you see this in the other histories, is all these spiritual adulteries came in. And then human sacrifice came in. This distortion happened. This was syncretism. And it's a little bit on the nose when you think about it because we too have a propensity to take our faith and to take things that sound convincing and intuitive and to add to it. But we still have kept our faith. They weren't saying, oh, I hate the Lord. I hate Yahweh. They're like, Yahweh plus Baal. The seduction of syncretism has always been a threat, Old Testament and in the New Testament. But Paul had a remedy. Paul had a solve for it. And his remedy, his solve, was Christ. He's saying, you don't need that extra Gnostic knowledge. You don't need experiences and initiations. You don't need more and difficult rules. So look again at what we just read. Because he wanted the Colossians to have all the riches of complete understanding. Isn't that something that we should strive for? All the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. For Paul, that's Christ. He's it. He's the only show in town. Why? Well, because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's in Christ. If that's who Jesus is, do you need anything else? He's saying, if you've got Jesus, you are all set. You don't need to spin your tires. You don't need to worry about offending the powers and principalities and do these rituals and these songs and dances. You don't need to do that. There is no addition required. N.T. Wright says, Christ himself is the mystery of God. He's not just a clue or a key to it, as though it were something other than himself. Everything we might want to ask about God and his purposes can and must now be answered with reference to the crucified and risen Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Another thing that this gets at here is how the Bible teaches that true knowledge comes through the word of God. Jesus, if you read John, he is the word made flesh. The word is sufficient for all that we need. If we want wisdom, we should want to seek wisdom. If we want learning, if we want holiness, we want to have encounters, that's good, but we do it through him, through it. Not secret knowledge, not secret rituals, not spiritualities, not rules and regulations and getting up tight. There's that old hymn, In Christ Alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. The cornerstone, the solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm. If we need extra rules, we don't have an adequate Jesus. If Gnosticism is valid, or that kind of vibe is valid, we don't have a God that became flesh. We don't have a God that raised from the dead. We don't have Christianity. We don't have redemption. We have poison in the smoothie. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to contrast that stuff with Jesus. The, the heading in my Bible of, of verses 4 and 5 says, Christ versus the Colossian heresy. He says, I'm saying all of this 
so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in the body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see two things. One, how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Precise, well-ordered, firm, steadfast, and strong. He is saying accurate doctrine of Christ held firmly. That is the solve. He wants to see them orderly and firm. Now, these are military metaphors. Paul is like, hey, I'm there in spirit like a good general inspecting the state of troops before the battle. The church needs a solid wall of theological defense, and that is Jesus. And let's be fair. For them, a lot of other stuff would have sounded reasonable. In their society, a lot of people would be doing a lot of things. They would say, you're not doing it right spiritually unless you're having these encounters and these experiences or you've done this ritual. You, 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 unless you're adding these, you're not touching, you're not handling, your diet is different. You've got to do something on a new moon. Like if you just read, and I just read and read. I was on an 11 and a half hour plane ride. I mostly dozed off, but I was reading about Gnosticism. I'm like, well, this is tiring. This is exhausting. Judaizing, it's exhausting. And while we don't do that in particular, don't we more or less do that sort of stuff? That, like, that genre didn't die. Like that band, <laughs> the Judaizer, they're not making the hits anymore, <laughs> but the genre of music is still alive. You ever heard people say you need Jesus and? And I mean professing Christian people. You need Jesus and you need to get slain in the spirit. Where is that? In this book. That's what you need Jesus and. You need Jesus and you need to manifest. You need to send your vibes out to the universe to make sure the universe will get you what you want and you need and desire. You need to manifest. That's what you need to do. You need Jesus and you need good karma because you don't want bad karma. You don't want those bad vibes coming back your way. You need Jesus and you better listen to the horoscope. You need Jesus, and you better follow that palm reading, or else Jesus and Jesus and extra spirituality. What about legalism? You need Jesus, and you better not dance. You better not play cards. You better not listen to secular music. You need Jesus, and you better not get tattoos or read any other version than the King James, because that's what Jesus spoke in first century Judea, right? Two years ago, I had a woman in this auditorium. She was checking out Riff. She came for the first time, and she came, and she found me with what I, I received. It was a somewhat confrontational question. She asked me a question. She said, are you vaccinated? And I, and I said, I am. And she looked at me as if I had just said, let's feed alligators, or babies to alligators, okay? That was, and she, she was mortified, and she said, if you were really a Christian... And if you had genuine faith, you would refuse all of that. And part of me, what I didn't say was like, because Jesus loves polio. I didn't say that. <laughs> and I never saw her again. That line of thinking, by the way, jives with Christian science, which is an oxymoron because it's not really Christian or scientific. But what I'm getting at here is, if it sounds like I am scoffing 
at extra rules, if it sounds like I am scoffing at extra spiritual practices, if it seems like I'm being irreverent, let me be abundantly clear, it's because I am. I am dismissing it, and I am mocking it. It has no place as your pastor, as a leader. I'm accountable for Christ alone. And I don't want us thinking a few drops in the smoothie is anything other than what it is, toxic. 2 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy to be ready to patiently preach the word, to be ready in any season to correct and rebuke, to encourage, because, and I quote, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers around themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. It is so natural for all of us to a person to want to sync up Christianity with other stuff, to take persuasive and popular notions along with us on our journey. So, how could we be free from this syncretism? Paul's got an answer. Jesus. Jesus alone. That's the remedy. Verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you have received Christ, so when you convert, Jesus is the Savior. Nothing you can do to earn God's love. Graciously, he died for you in your place. Just as you have received that, Jesus is the Lord. Continue to walk in him. You don't need to walk someplace else. Being rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. You don't need a new teaching. Just as you were taught. And overflowing with gratitude, because when you see that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done, that God will never love you more or less, it's impossible because he sees you positioned in the heavenlies. He sees you the way he sees your son. You're going to be grateful with gratitude. So we can avoid the pitfalls of syncretism when we have a strong and accurate faith in one person, Jesus. And this is the main thrust of the letter. It's Christology. It's the study of the person of Jesus, the Christ. Now, I don't want to steal too much thunder from where we'll be in a few weeks, but seven verses later, Paul goes on and he says this about Jesus. He erased the certificate of debt. We were in debt, a moral debt, a sin debt, with its obligations, wait, we have, we have no more obligations, that was against us and opposed us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished, it is done. Then he gets this. <laughs> he disarmed the powers. They have, bis- dis- they have been disarmed. The rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them. The powers and the principalities, they got dunked on. They're not only unimportant, he disgraced them because of who he is. There can be none other like God. Christ's victory on the cross and victory through the ascension and resurrection means that we have tyranny from all, or we have no tyranny from any other alien forces. There's no obligations. There's no spiritual powers that hold any sway over us. We do not need to live cowering lives of fear, worrying that I'm not having enough emotional experiences, or I I don't have enough legalistic rules. If you have Christ, you have what you need. Just receive the Lord. Then grow in him. 
And, the, and this is the basic reasoning for opposing all of this. If you have Jesus, you've been baptized in Jesus, you have all you need. You're already fully loved. You're already fully accepted. You have access to the mystery. You don't have to worry about spiritual peer pressure, church peer pressure. And on the real, if, if our horoscope or our extra rules hold any real sway over our hearts, what does that say about what we mean when we say Jesus is my Lord? Put a little asterisk. Well, unless I have the right kind of moral momentum, Unless I'm on the right side of, I mean, if you want to have a magic eight ball to have fun, like I'm not one of those people, I'm not being legalistic, but if you're just kind of like, oh, will I win the lottery today? Uh, Yes, I will. That's a joke. But when we're like, oh my gosh, my fortune cookie said this, I should not apply for that job. Like if you're really there, I think you're, maybe you're like, um, we're, we're a little bit more like Michael Scott than we think. He says, I'm not superstitious but I'm a little bit stitious. Like, we shouldn't be stitious at all. He has triumphed over all legalistic dictates, over all phony superstitions. So get this. I'll be this bold. If Jesus is Lord, I can confidently use the number 13. I can stay on the 13th floor, which a lot of hotels won't do. Um, I can follow a black cat or whatever that one is. I can go under a ladder. I can eat 666 pieces of rice and not worry about being cursed. I can step on a crack, and I believe my mother will still have no back pain. Jesus, if he has defeated all the powers, do I have to be afraid of the boogeyman? The demons hear his name, and they shudder. They have been disarmed. They have been dismissed. If you think I'm, like, going too hard, let's just go up a notch. Paul, 2 Corinthians. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons, he's going to use some violent confrontational language, weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. You ever seen like a building get demolished? They blow stuff up. They bring in cranes. They have got guys with like calloused hands and sledgehammers. They break stuff and they take it away. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive, not every person, but thought captive to obey Christ. This is aggressive language that violently goes after what is off base. Because if Jesus is Lord, we are in the demolition business. Not of people but a very proud and and every human-based argument that would set itself up against the knowledge of God. So let's do a bit of practical demolition here. Some examples of syncretism where we we combine something with the faith. We're still holding on to the faith. We're still like, yes, I love Jesus, but it's Jesus and, okay? What about materialism? Most people, even if we're caught up in materialism, we don't walk around saying, I'm materialistic. Like, you don't see the materialistic bumper sticker on the car. Like, you might see a Christian fish, (laughs) but it's not Jesus plus, you know, and there's money. But this can go a lot of ways. We, We get glory from money. For me, that's not how I'm wired. You know what I get from money? I get security. Right? I get security from that. Some will trust in chariots. Ah, we're supposed to trust in the Lord. For some of us, that's our chariot. And so the prosperity gospel, it's common, 
We can look around and very easily say, like, that's a mature person. That's a godly person. That's a self-controlled person. And there could be some Venn diagram of overlap if that's, (laughs) they're wise, they follow the Proverbs, all of that. But we need to be very, very careful of thinking that that is a sign of wealth. That is a sign of spiritual health. Because there's this guy named Jesus who can be a real buzzkill. (laughs) He says you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. Just the way it is. When he was in Capernaum, and he was talking about the cost of following him, he said this, foxes have dens, and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When I was in Capernaum, I walked by, and this is the synagogue where Jesus unrolled the scroll and read from Isaiah. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And uh, there's a Franciscan order that has a church there. And they have, as you're walking by, and it's all old, they have this, I I guess you could say like park bench statue. And you you see it from a distance. And you're like, is that like a trash bag on this park bench? And you're walking and you get closer. I'm like, oh, that looks like the tropes I have for a homeless guy. And then you come up and then you see the feet of the person sticking out on the bench have holes in them. That, that, that Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head because money isn't God. But yet you can be so rich without it. So provocative question, is it possible that you and I have a syncretism that makes money more important or money as important or too convoluted, too intertwined with our faith Is that possible? What we worry about probably will give us the answer. And while you ponder that, consider Jesus as homeless. What about individualism? We get synced up with that very intuitively. Where we believe that an individual's personality, will, agenda, the goals, that's most important. We live in a society that is obsessed with personal rights, personal expression. We celebrate being independent and self-reliant. Statements like live your truth, follow your heart, depend on yourself. Notions like God ultimately wants you happy. And guess who gets to define happy? That jives with a lot of Christian people. When the Bible uses the word you, it rarely speaks to an individual. One of the commentaries I was reading said, like, you, the plural you, like, y'all, not me, not you, is used about 4,600 times in Scripture. Think about the most important command. You are supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God, and then your neighbor as yourself, get vertical, get horizontal. It's not saying, hey, person in the mirror, you love you, you do you, make sure you live your best life now. It's not what it's saying. It is God. And moreover, the scripture teaches the individual to lay your life down, to be poured out. Jesus was poured out as an offering. This means sometimes we have to restrict our appetites We have to roll back our desires and be self-controlled. And oh, by the way, Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is desperately sick. It's wicked. It's corrupted. We need external help outside of the self. So dear friends, provocative question. Do you have a syncretism in your heart that puts you on the throne? Or do you have a shared throne with Jesus? God is my co-pilot. Is that what's going on? I mean, we might say the right things for sure, but here's a way to check. 
God says something, and we're like, mm, nah, I'm going to do me. I mean, tell me that you love Jesus. Jesus is Lord all day. But if he says, jump, and you're like, no, I'm going to sit. <laughs> you're only kidding yourself. So while you ponder that question, if you have that kind of syncretism, consider how Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must carry his cross and follow me. Thirdly, what about nationalism? Nationalism. We got patriotism, and that's great, that's fine, especially on a day where we are thinking about honoring the fallen, the brave. That's awesome, wonderful, beautiful. But what about nationalism? Patriotism on steroids, being synced up and blended as one and the same with Christianity. There's a lot of persuasive arguments. There's a lot of tradition where we conflate what it means to be a Christian with rabid support with the nation state or devotion to country trumps or is the, 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 the lens through which we see Christianity. Now, when we see this in other places, Germany, 1930s, and what churches were doing in Germany, 1930s, that hits hard. Back in the 300s, after Constantine merged Christianity with the Roman Empire, after a while, it left a lot of people thinking that what it meant to be Roman was what it meant to be Christian, that God favored Rome and the empire, and the empire was the city on the hill. <laughs> that has been used in our nation's history. That has been in Christianized nations, that the, that the state is the city of the hill. That's the church. Many can worship simultaneously God and the emperor, God. And, and I have been in many settings where we have a flag and a cross as if they're one and the same. And not that I'm at all recommending this, but I will say there are some long-standing Christian movements. For instance, <clears throat> the Anabaptists, who they believe, while Christians should be good citizens, that Christians should not have any allegiance pledged to anyone other than Jesus. I'm not prescribing that. All I'm saying is that, is God and God alone the thing, or do we have a blending of something that is on the surface good that we have elevated to something ultimate? While you're pondering this, Ask yourself, is it a chance that we have a syncretism that blurs the lines between empire and the kingdom of God? And while you're pondering that, consider how Revelation 18.4 calls believers to come out from the empire. So let's apply. How in the world do we avoid the poisoned smoothie? How can we be free from syncretism, from the allure, from the peer pressure, from the promises of I'm a good person, I'm a spiritual person, I'm secure? How can we stand alone on Christ? Paul's got you. Three thoughts. First of all, receive Jesus. Convert, repent, believe. Jesus died for compromised, contaminated people like me. People like you. He died for the people with itching ears that wanted to fuse him with something else and deputize it as Christian rather than Christ alone. For those of us who want to add extra junk, he is so gracious. So we just need to turn to him, admit that we have issues, and give him not legalism, not spiritual experiences, not any of the other isms that I did mention, other isms that I didn't mention. Give him total allegiance. Receive Jesus. Once we have received Jesus, number two, we need to be rooted 
in Jesus. There's a sense where our faith, and I mean this positively, needs to be defensive. We need to stand firm in him. In, in my backyard, I have this, this big oak tree. I love it. Uh, the kids can swing on it and you can hang from it. It's a beautiful, beautiful tree. And uh, believe it or not, that tree doesn't move. Remains seated. That's hard to believe, I'm sure. But it has these, these deep roots that go down. So when the seasons change, when the wind blows, it stays put. So if we have received Jesus as it, as the main thing, and as I said a few weeks back, and the main thing is to make that main thing the main thing, we need to stay put with Jesus, be rooted just as we were taught, retain that accurate theology, and stubbornly refuse, even when it's unpopular, to have persuasive arguments and tradition pull you away. So be rooted in Jesus. Number three, be built up in Jesus. There's a sense where we need to not just be defensive, but we need to be offensive. We need to get nutrients. We need to absorb all that we need to grow. I think for us, very practically, this means we need the steady work of letting Scripture renew our minds so that we can determine the good from the bad. That'll kind of be like, what am I drinking? Is that... Is that, yeah, that's, that's unleaded. Mm, yeah, I gotta spit that out. Like, you, that, that will help you. It'll help you discern. It will renew your mind. So we need to open up the word of Jesus with the community of Jesus so that we can go try to advance the gospel of Jesus, following and obey him with other saints. Because the most healthy faith is a faith that is put into action. So my dear brothers and sisters of Rio Town, may you receive him. May you be rooted in him, and may you be built up in him. Let's pray. Jesus, our only Savior, who jealously longs for our souls, who calls us into a place that can sometimes seem lonely, a place that really isn't about the status quo, it's about obedience. Lord, help us just to see you for how marvelous you are, that we are complete in you, that we have nothing to prove. We have no one to impress because you have impressed the Father. Lord, I just want to pray for all of us here that we would see the different ways that we sync up and that we would have the kind of sophistication to separate good things and not make those good things ultimate things. So just help us, Lord. Give us your grace because you are so good. I pray that today is a day that you would just renew our commitment and how great our salvation is, how worthwhile our Savior is so that we can walk free because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We pray all of this in your strong, saving name. Amen.